bring the love of Wisconsin's outdoors in through the beauty and quality craftsmanship of Pella Windows and Doors. Lock in your prices by February 28th and get 0% interest for up to 48 months. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. This is, of course, a very sad day. As we speak, the visitation for slain Milwaukee police officer Peter Jerving is going on. The funeral is scheduled to start at about 1.30, and the estimates are that after around 2.30 or so this afternoon, there will be the procession that will take Officer Jerving's body to his final resting place. Uh, John McCure is going to come in. We're going to have live coverage of the procession and then the, the ceremony, the honor court that's going to be held um, at the uh, cemetery. So we're a little bit flexible with our, our timing on that, but our estimates are that's probably going to, the procession is probably going to kick off around 2.30. Very, very, just a very, very sad day. A lot of ground to cover on today's show. Let's get right to it. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Well, a, a week ago, we were talking about the, the story, Joe Biden finally ordering the military to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon. I, I'm sorry, China says it was just a, a non-government research balloon. Nobody believes that. But the the balloon was shot down, of course, after being allowed to sort of diagonally traverse the entire United States. Finally, it got off the water, over the waters in South Carolina, and it was shot down. Since then... There have been three more uh, what they're describing as objects that have been noted coming into either Canadian or U.S. airspace. These three objects, and again, that's the term that they're, they're using right now, have all been, rather than allow them to come in and travel across the country, all three of them have been taken down by either U.S. authorities or at the request of, of Canadian authorities. So this is now four incursions into U.S. airspace in the last oh, week or so. Now, one of the things that is going on is NORAD, which is the you know organization that's responsible for kind of air security. They're saying that what they have done is they have now sort of tightened their their radar and they are now investigating i don't know blips or things like that that they might have not looked at before so it is entirely possible that we have had all sorts of flying objects coming over the united states or over canada or certainly into u.s airspace over the last few years that were never picked up because authorities weren't really looking for it, which raises a couple questions, but let's put that aside. Now, apparently, we are in a new era. They are being aggressive in shooting down these different types of balloons, objects, whatever you want to call them. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I guess I, I have a couple takes on this. First of all, it is unfortunate that we apparently do not have the technology right now that would allow us to somehow force these objects to the ground without blowing them out of the sky. Because you blow them out of the sky, and then, of course, it, it falls, and then you have the 
uh, efforts that you're trying to make to recover to, to recover the the whatever the remains are and find out what this in fact was. Be nice if you could figure out a way just to simply force the thing down without destroying it. But I'm not sure we have the technology to do that. So the alternative right now is to implement this new policy, which is apparently when we see these unidentified objects that are coming into U.S. airspace, we, we take them down. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This is a policy that I agree with 100%. Now, maybe maybe as we examine the wreckage from you know what was taken down over the course of the last couple of days, we'll be able to get a better idea of what is going on here. But in the short run, it seems to me that you cannot allow unidentified flying objects, and I'm not talking about UFOs from outer space. I'm talking about unidentified flying objects that are entering U.S. airspace. And just like I would suggest that, well, if if it was a plane that refused to acknowledge stuff, you try to force that down, and if, if it doesn't respond, then you might have no choice but to try to force it down some other way. But alternatively, whether these are balloons or whatever, you cannot allow them, I would argue, to come into U.S. airspace. So I think if the new policy is blow them out of the sky, I'm all behind that policy. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. For those of you keeping score at home, um, on Sunday afternoon, the U.S. shot down a fourth flying object. This is the fourth in the last week. This one was at about 20,000 feet above Lake Huron. And, of course, now there's heightened concerns over North American airspace after the suspected Chinese um, spy balloon was found crossing the U.S. I, I think that our policy of shooting these things down is absolutely a, a correct. There, there's no question about it. Um, one of our texters says, Jeff, how long do you think an unidentified flying object would last over China? Um, not long. Um, Jeff, could these objects be domestic craft, like college kids or some group? Uh, maybe. I, I don't think anybody knows, but I think you got to get to the bottom of this quickly. One of our texters say, how do you know that they're not using some kind of germ or disease warfare? Well, my response would be, I don't think that's the case, but you don't know, which is all the more reason why you have to shoot these things down right away. You you can't allow them to travel over some populated area because they, they, they could I mean I, I don't look I don't want to go down the conspiracy route in the worst case scenario but yeah that was the concern about the Chinese balloon that if it wasn't if it was something more than a surveillance device let's say it had bombs in it and it hovers over a US nuclear facility in Montana and you ignite those bombs who knows what what could happen here on top of that some of these latest objects keep in mind the um, the Chinese spy balloon surveillance craft was flying at like 60,000 feet, right? Um, but these, or was that 40,000 feet? You know, these other ones are, are lower, like the one they shot down over Lake Huron yesterday. It was 20,000 feet, and that does, you know, that that's that's where you have a possible hindrance to civilian aviation. Stephen Oak Creek. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, thanks there. Uh, I'm glad we're shooting these things down, but my question is, why aren't we seeing images of these latest uh, objects? We had plenty of images of the balloon. 
but there's got to be images that the military has, so why aren't they releasing images of what these latest objects look like? Yeah, I, I my guess is that they will sooner rather than later. What, what do you think's going on? Do you, do you have a guess as to what you think these things are? Uh, my guess is it's China just messing with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I no th- thanks to call Steve. I I think you're you're probably right. You know, China um, and China's you know and China's response is, "Oh, the US has flown 10 of these similar types of balloons over Chinese airspace in the last couple of years." Now, the the US denies that. They say, "No, we're we're not doing this." And and actually, given all the satellites we have, see that's that's the weird thing about about this this entire thing, because China's got surveillance satellites in orbit. The U.S. has surveillance satellites in orbit. You wonder what information could be gleaned from a, a balloon flying at forty or fifty thousand feet that could not otherwise be gleaned from you know the satellite devices they have, and, and that's that's something that at least right now nobody's disclosing. But for all these different concerns that people are raising, I think you, you can't let this stuff get over populated areas in U.S. airspace. And that's why I think, you know, Canada did the right thing in saying, hey, let's scramble fighters, let, let's take this down. And I think the U.S. is doing the right thing as well. Um, let's see, uh, Jeff, China claims we've had more than 10 balloons in their airspace. Is that true? Well, they, they're claiming that. But, of course, China also claimed that this was not a surveillance balloon. It was a weather balloon that went off course. Um, and, and, of course, nobody believes that. All I can tell you is the government adamantly denies using, you know, these types of balloons. They were very, very clear about that. Jeff, how are these objects being detected? Interesting question. Because there's a fascinating story in the Wall Street Journal today that, that talks about how we missed these over the years because, again, NORAD wasn't looking for them, which to me um, raises a couple questions. But, like, the radar wasn't set for to, to monitor these things. So now we've – and so they, they would, things would show up as blips, for example, and we wouldn't be paying any attention to them. Now we've apparently adjusted the way we're scanning, which I think is a very, very good thing. Um, and as a result of that – I think there's we're going to start noticing these things more and more. Let's talk to Jim and Rippin. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, you know nobody talks about the satellites that are you know circling the globe, and every country that's high tech has got a satellite out there that can pick the license plate off a car. You know these air mm-hmm. these balloons are pretty low tech stuff, you know. But as far as intelligence gathering, I think the satellites which are more capable of gathering intelligence than anything else. Well, I, I, which is why, which is why I don't disagree with you. Which is why, to me, using the, these balloons are so bizarre. But what, what do you do with them? I mean, we we have these. If okay, you're in charge. We have the these objects. Like you've got the Chinese surveillance balloon. Do do you think you just ignore it, or do we have to take it down? Well, I think we should take it down. As long as they're in our, our, uh, you know, I don't know what height level is considered, you know, our country. But, you know, when the satellites are over our country, we're not allowed to shoot down satellites. Right. What, right. what no. is the height level, you know? 
Uh, Jim, thanks for the call. I mean, I, I have to. Look, I mean, there's no question. If you're if you got a balloon at twenty thousand feet, like the one yesterday was, or at forty thousand feet, that's that's U.S. airspace. And whatever that the first balloon was flying at, why do I think it's sixty thousand feet? But that that's U.S. airspace. If it's in orbit outside the Earth, it's not. And, and I guess I mean I I agree with you. That's what I was just commenting on. To me, it's just. You, we've, you've got the, the high-tech satellites that are circling the globe, so it makes me wonder, you know, what's why do you use a balloon, this balloon technology, or what are some of these other objects? But to me, that's an even more compelling reason to say we're, we're not going to let them come into U.S. airspace. We're, we're not going to let something get over Cleveland. We're not going to let something get over Detroit. We're, we're going to stop this before it happens because, again, you don't want to be an alarmist here, but if you did have some bad actor that was trying to figure out a way to, I don't know, detonate a bomb or something in U.S. airspace, this this would be a way to do it. And again, I'm, I'm not going down that route, but that's why you have to protect civilian airspace. So I think we're making the right decision to be vigorous about, hey, taking these things down. And I do think, you know, it's important to figure out what is going on here. We understand the first balloon, understand what China was probably trying to accomplish. These other three objects were they private weather balloons that were out there? Was it something coming from Russia? Was it something coming from North Korea? What exactly is it? And you can't allow this to happen. Um, Jeff, my fear is that these balloons could drop a radioactive device into the Great Lakes, crippling our water supply. Um, well, I... There's all sorts of doomsday scenarios that you can develop. I really don't think we're there, but that's why it's important, I don't know, not to let these things get that far. Nancy in Burlington. Nancy, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Um, I spoke to my son the other day about this. Um, He's Air Force, retired. He served 18 years. Um, he served five of those at Maelstrom, where the balloon sat right over. Uh, his specialty is electronic security systems. He said that balloon should have been sat, shot down over the Aleutian Islands. He's, mm-hmm. His feeling was NORAD was asleep at the wheel, let it slip in, didn't think it was anything serious. Um, he He was really upset about it. Um, he said, China, I asked him about Chinese spy satellites. He said they're the worst in the world. Okay. They can uh, pick up what our, our spy satellites can pick up. They sat right over Maelstrom, picking up um, communications on the base. Then they sat over Kansas, where our bombers are. That should have never happened. It was the, yeah. a terrible security breach. Yeah, Nancy, th- thanks for the call. I, I don't think there's any question that the, the, the first thing you I, – I agree, I think it was a terrible security breach. Secondly, I, I think you're right that NORAD was asleep at the switch. I, I think that um, that they just weren't focused on this, and, and I don't know why. I think that's a – I think that is a fair question for Republicans and Democrats to ask is that – how long has this been going on and why weren't we attuned to this? Because I, I agree with your what, what you were saying and your son. I mean, it's got the potential to be a, a huge security breach in the fact that, I mean, again, we don't know what the surveillance equipment was. But, yeah, you, you could 
they could be intercepting all sorts of things. And, and maybe your son is right that this is much more that the, Chi- if the Chinese satellites are awful. This is a way that they can accumulate stuff. I, I do think it was a security breach. There, there's no question about it. I appreciate what the Pentagon was saying is that once you let it get overpopulated areas, you've got a different concern that's there because, again, you don't want shrapnel coming down on on Billings, Montana or or whatever. I understand that's the concern. That's why if you can shoot it down over the Aleutian Islands or you can shoot it down over the Yukon, um, that's why you do that. And hopefully, hopefully we've wakened up, awakened to that moving forward. Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now. Actually, it wasn't that cold last weekend. But soon it is going to be warming up, and you'll need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here with the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase for this spring, presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week we are brought to you by Ridgetop Exteriors. Visit their website at ridgetopexteriors.com or give them a call at 414-291-7663. It's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. Don't know if you saw this story. Um, it's been percolating for the last couple days. Apparently, um, Mark Lazry, who is one of the co-owners of the Bucks, he was one of the owners, part of that ownership group that, that purchased the Bucks when, when Herb Cole was looking to sell, and Bucks have been very, very successful. But apparently now he is interested. The word is he's got a 25% stake in the Bucks, and he's got an interest in selling his 25% stake. Um, they, they purchased the team for about $550 million in 2014, although that was offset by, I think, some money that Herb Cole contributed. Um, their estimates are that the Bucks are now worth well over a billion dollars. So I think, you know, it's, it's one of these deals where that, that's how owners make their money. It's not necessarily operating the teams on a year-to-year basis, but they make the money when they sell because sports teams – almost always appreciate in value. And if you're the owner of an NBA franchise, you're one of only 30. So he's apparently looking to sell. He's been shopping it around, and he's, at least the, the word is that the billionaire who owns the Cleveland Browns is perhaps interested in, in buying his share. I, I, I've made this comment on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter. It's at JeffWagner620. Here, here's the, the interesting side note to this story. Remember... Mark Lazary's son, Alex, who came to Milwaukee in 2014 when dad bought part of the team and has worked with the team since then. Remember, he wanted to be a U.S. senator. Remember, he was running for U.S. Senate for a couple years and then ultimately got out of the race like a week or two beforehand in favor of during the primary in favor of Mandela Barnes. I, I wonder I wonder if son Alex had succeeded in winning his Senate run, whether dad would still be looking to sell. I I wonder that. And I guess I also wonder if dad sells his interest in the team. All right, is Alex committed to Milwaukee and Wisconsin for the long term, or will he pick up his bags and head back to New York or wherever? Inquiring minds want to know. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. I, I posted I posted this over the weekend. It got a series of sort of interesting responses. Uh, Tony Evers is out with his plan to combat reckless driving. 
All right. Now, let me I want to share this with you. Now, if you are a regular listener of this program, you know that this is something that we talk about on a regular basis. How do you deal with reckless driving? And it's interesting. So I post stuff. I always get people say, well, what are your solutions? Well, I I I, I'm screaming my solutions to to the mountaintops. I mean, it starts with reckless driving is not a crime. Reckless driving, you get a ticket. It doesn't matter how many times you are engaged in reckless driving, you get a ticket. Unless you run through a red light and hit and kill somebody or cause severe damage, or you get caught running from the police, that might be a crime. But just blowing through a red light at 95 miles an hour is in and of itself, it's a ticket, no matter how many times you do it. I think it is insane. My ideas, and I say this to my friends in the legislature, trying to encourage them to get off their butts, I think just like drunk driving is first offense is civil. After that, it is a crime. I think the same thing should be true with reckless driving because when you have people that are driving 80 and 90 miles an hour blowing through red lights, it is insane to allow them to continue to do that because what we're really just waiting for is for them to hit and kill somebody, and by then it is too late. So I admit that is my first response to this. It is, all right, let's let's make this a crime, and then let's aggressively prosecute it, and if you want to attack on seizing the cars to that i'm all in favor of that but that is my first run solution tony evers is out with his policy um here's what he wants to do according to today's tmj4 his plan includes 60 million dollars for traffic calming project grants in other words more like roundabouts and a little bit narrower streets six Point five million to lower the cost of driver's ed, 35 more state troopers, ignition interlock devices after the first OWI, and increasing the seatbelt violation fine to $25. Okay, on top of that, this is my favorite aspect of it, he would implement driver's licenses for all which would mean that essentially people in this country illegally would get driver's licenses. So this is his idea as to how you stop reckless driving. We give driver's licenses to everybody regardless of their documented status. In other words, illegal aliens get driver's licenses. We have... $6.5 $6.5 million to cover the cost of comprehensive driver education for low-income students. We put in traffic circles and pedestrian islands. We hire a few more cops, and we have internet uh, ignition interlocks after the first o- OWI. And, and by the way, we also increase the seat violation, belt violation fine, to $25. Something that somebody might have wanted to inform the, the governor, because we actually we, we talked about this the other day, In Milwaukee, of all the tickets they have written for reckless driving in the last three years, would you like to guess the number that remain unpaid? Well, I don't have to work too hard. 77%. Three out of every four tickets that they give for reckless driving remain unpaid. In other words, the people ball them up. They throw the tickets in the back seat and they keep driving recklessly. Giving tickets is no disincentive to do it. My point would be driver's education. 
I, I mean, really? Do you think that driver you need driver's education to be told, hey, um, you know, don't drive 90 miles an hour and blow through a red light? Huh. I, I'm not sure driver's education is going to solve that. Increasing the seatbelt violation, give me a break. Some of the traffic calming stuff, okay, that, that might that might deal with stuff on the edges. But my argument is that the people who are driving 70 and 80 miles an hour in general are intending to do that. 35 more state troopers. I'm all in favor of more state troopers. But how is that going to help on the mean streets of Milwaukee? And, uh, again, driver's ed for um, low-income kids. All right, I don't have problems with expanded driver's ed. But here's my question. Can't we get real? Can't we recognize that until we start having consequences for reckless driving and punishing the people who are doing it on a repeat basis, we're never going to solve this problem? And I guess it is frustrating to me that the governor refuses to acknowledge that there is a law enforcement solution to this. So we talk about all these different kind of touchy-feely things, giving driver's licenses to people who are in this country illegally and suggesting that that's going to stop the reckless driving around here give me a break 855-616-1620 that is the old national bank talk and text line all right is this the way to tackle um reckless driving more driver's education driver's licenses for people in the country illegally um increasing the fines for uh for seat belts um, ignition interlocks for second offense drunk drivers that I really don't have that much of an opinion on other than the fact that second offense drunk drivers, that, that's a crime anyways. I'm trying to criminalize the people who are sober who are driving 90 miles an hour. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Will the governor's suggestions work? We discuss in a moment. This ticking sound you hear in the background is my head getting ready to explode. Okay, so so Tony Evers rolls out this plan that this is how he wants to stop reckless driving. Give people who are in this country illegally driver's licenses. Expand driver's education for low-income kids. Um, Spend $60 million putting in pedestrian islands and traffic circles. All right, hire 35 more state troopers. I'm okay with that. Interlock, ignition interlocks after the first OWI. But, of course, here's the problem. Reckless driving is not a crime. And, and, oh, oh, then my favorite, let's increase the fine for not wearing a seatbelt to $25. Huh? None of this deals with the underlying problem that you have people, in most cases, who don't have valid driver's licenses anyways, who are driving 95 miles an hour, blowing through red lights, and it doesn't matter whether there's a pedestrian island or a bump out at the crosswalks. It's not something that's inadvertent. Look, this is Evers' attempt to try to spend taxpayer money to sort of redesign things to maybe encourage people to get out of cars and using reckless driving as as the ruse to do it, this is going to do nothing to deal with reckless driving. You would be so much better off taking that $60 million and, I don't know, use it to pay for some more prison guards and to... um Okay, go ahead and then you know maybe you know build a couple more facilities. Jeff, if we were having a roundtable discussion, a brainstorming session, and somebody proposed these ideas, the moderator would say, "Okay, thank you." Next, <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff. None of these expenditures, other than the thirty-five more state troopers, really does anything. How about three fifty enforcement, punishment, and impoundment is the only strategy that works. A- Amen. 
Jeff, Saturday, I was driving north on Howell Avenue near the airport when I had to take evasive action to get out of the way of two cars racing and going around 80 miles an hour. Please criminalize this type of driving. Jeff, nobody's going to care about extended driver's ed. We've all taken it to get our licenses. Furthermore, I don't see why adding the ability of everybody to carry a license is going to help the problem at hand. Um, yeah, Jeff, increasing fines that nobody pays, giving illegal lim- immigrants licenses so they can vote illegally are no real solutions. It's fluff and more fluff. Jeff, few reckless drivers even have a license. It's a problem for the court system to enforce and imply laws that exist. My current, my daughter is currently in driver's ed and it's under $500. Give me strength. See, I'm, I'm going to read more of these texts, but you get it. Everybody gets it. But, of course, what's frustrating to me, there's a story in the Journal Sentinel. There's a story in Channel 4. Nobody nobody looks at Tony Evers when they roll this out and says, what are you smoking, Governor? Don't you realize what the problem is? How are any of these things going to deal with the, well, the numbers they're throwing around is that almost 3,000 people a year are injured by reckless drivers. Amen. You know, in January alone in the city of Milwaukee, you had, what, 10 people or so who were killed by reckless drivers. That was January alone. But nobody in the media has the guts to go to the governor and say, explain to me how any of this is going to stop the the 16-year-old or the 17-year-old who's in the stolen car, who's driving 90 miles an hour, who decides they're going to run through the red light, and who's done it five or six or seven times. Like like driver's ed is going to teach them you don't go through the red light? Uh, uh. Um, <clears throat> Jeff, a friend of mine is a police officer in Milwaukee. He told me that he comes across multiple people every day with active misdemeanor warrants, and they're let go. Many have multiple warrants. The entire criminal system needs a teardown rebuild, starting with getting rid of the DA. Well, the chance to do that will be in 2024. Jeff, take the $65 million, build and staff a jail, and put mandatory 30 days in jail, and by the way, impound the vehicle. Amen. So for everybody, when I when I criticize this, I get there, there's a certain contingent of people, not many, who well, you never have any solutions. I say, you're just not listening. I, I've got the solutions, and I guarantee you, if you do what I am talking about, which is have consequences and hold people accountable, you're going to make the streets a heck of a lot safer than you will if we increase the fine for not wearing a seatbelt to $25, and we, well, we, we put in a couple bump outs at crosswalks. Now, I'm Look, I, I have I have no position. If if you want to put in more traffic circles or bump outs at crosswalks, that, that that's okay. But let's not pretend that that's going to be something that's going to stop reckless driving. Jeff, the governor showing us again he has no relevant plans to help. Um, a matter of fact, what he's doing is rewarding bad behavior. Jeff, the root cause of the current issues, driving crime, etc., is the complete lack of consequences. Um, yes. Jeff, it sounds like the governor is suggesting everything except a solution. He's putting forth ideas, um, but I think maybe once you're a politician, you lose all sense of reality. Right. I mean, look, I, I look at these things, and I, again, if you're asking me, okay, do you want to have more comprehensive driver's education courses for low-income kids? I, I guess I don't have a problem with that one way or the other. Allowing people living in Wisconsin illegally to obtain driver's licenses – Really, really, Tony, that that is that is your idea. And you're going to try to 
present that as a way to reduce reckless driving and, and nobody nobody even calls you on it? My my goodness, where does that come from? But none of the governor's suggestions, not a single one, have anything to do with severe with consequences, including the obvious one, which is let's start criminalizing this. Jeff, I generally like the governor's policies, but he's out to lunch on this one. Um, yes, he's out to lunch and he's out to dinner and he's out to breakfast on this one. Consequences and stiff penalties are the only way to stop this. Jeff, traffic calming measures are an oxymoron. Well, they certainly are when it comes to dealing with the reckless drivers. Jeff, the only thing missing in this is that he forgot to include giving a license to anyone under the age of 16. Well, so you get the idea as to what's going on here. I guess I just look at this, and and I'm just tired of what's going on. And I, I think we get this lip service and you have a governor who I believe wants to, you know, remake the state. You've got all these different liberal policies and these ways to spend money. And we're going to try to put this under a basket that said this is how we're going to deal with reckless driving. And so nobody's willing to say this has nothing to do with reckless driving. Now, if you want to put more money to allow people to make roads more pedestrian friendly or make them more bus friendly or whatever, okay, just say that. But this isn't going to do a darn thing to stop reckless driving, and it is an embarrassment that the governor would try to flout it and present it in that fashion. If you want to stop reckless driving, and I start with my friend Robin Voss. Here's what you do. Criminalize second offense reckless driving. Allow authorities to start prosecuting people and putting them in jail. Let's not let people keep running red lights at 95 miles an hour and have to wait until they actually kill somebody. Why don't we start taking cars? Why don't we start punishing them before people die? That's not too much to ask. Well, maybe you shouldn't live there. Now, here's here's the story. A couple of years ago, when we did um, our river cruise of the Rhine, we started in Amsterdam, which is it's a great city. It's also one of those places that you walk down the streets, and it reminds you of being a rock concert at a rock concert in 1975. That the, the smell of, of pot is everywhere. So one night. My wife and I, I was with my wife, Fran, and our friends, Peter and Betty, we decided we were going to walk from our hotel. We walked over and toured the famous red light district in Amsterdam, and and prostitution is legal there. And actually, you walk through the red light district, and we were there early on a Saturday night. I'm sure it. I'm sure business picked up later on, but we, we were there early. But it, it's it, quite frankly, it's very, very depressing in, in many respects. You you walk there and there's these these women who just kind of like sit or stand in, in these windows and, you know, you uh, you're offering their goods for for sale and stuff like that. And it really was, I, I think, kind of depressing. And we kind of walked up and down a couple of the streets and said, OK, time time to go back to. Let, let's go find a place to have a beer. Well, anyhow, it's interesting that um, apparently a lot of they are looking at restricting open air pot smoking on the streets in the red light district of Amsterdam because apparently there are rowdy tourists who are disturbing some of the people who live in the area. Um, and some of the uh, some of the, tour, the people who live in the red light district are saying, well, you know, we've got these people that are coming through and they're walking through late at night and they're uh, patronizing the brothels and things like that. And and the residents aren't able to sleep. OK, to which my to which my response is, if you're going to live in the red light district, 
you should probably understand that that's unless you're going to close down the whole thing and nobody seems to want to do that if you're going to live in the red light district you you got to sort of put up with some noise it's kind of like saying hey i've got an apartment in the french quarter at new orleans and in new orleans and hey there, there's revelers that are out on the, the to me i found again the red light district in amsterdam to be kind of de- depressing but it is what it is but just so you know if you're heading out to patronize the brothels starting in may you're not going to be allowed to smoke pot on the streets like that's going to solve the problem live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show now here's wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back to the show okay so sounds like you know a little bit of snow and stuff coming at the end of the week but but here again is the bottom line we are essentially halfway through february daylight hours are increasing the weather in southeast wisconsin i think you know there's been some stretches of cold but in general it has been a, a mild winter there is still of course the possibility of you know a, a stretch of a little bit of cold weather or some snow but once you get to mid-February and then into March, yeah, yeah. if you get snow, it, it doesn't hang around that long. And, yes, you can get that stretch of really cold weather, but, again, it's not going to be like the two or three weeks that are prolonged. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. That light is not a train coming the other way. So from a weather perspective, pretty darn good. Uh, baseball kicks off, I think, at the end of this week. Um, you've got pitchers and catchers that are reporting, and, and pretty soon, you know, spring training is starting, and then we're off to the races summer is here so just you know don't get frustrated with uh, a day or two of bad weather things will get better all right we discussed this one day at the end of of last week and the the reaction is by by other people who should know better is even more aggravating uh, connie just referred to this in the in the newscast late last week walmart announced that it was closing their Walmart store that's located on 103rd and Silver Spring. Um, interestingly, Walmart also announced that they were closing a couple other stores in, in Chicago at the same time. So this store, it's in the, the, what do they call it? They call it like the Timmerman Plaza. And the Timmerman Plaza, well, I, I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's fallen on hard times, but there, there was a grocery store that was there. Um, that closed in, in 2017, and you had the Walmart store that was there. But now it, it, there's a GameStop, and there's like a beauty product store and something like that. It's it's the, the big box retailers are, are leaving that. And, you know, when we talked about this last week, we, we had some interesting feedback, including some calls from the, uh, at least one guy who was a Walmart manager at another store. He was saying, look, part, part of the problem here is that, uh, there's there's a high problem of what they would problem with shrinkage, which is theft, and, and that's hurting the bottom line. But but my larger take on this is the reason Walmart is a successful business is the fact that that they they understand that they are in fact a, a business, and when they're in a situation where they're they're not making money, um, they, they close those stores. And that's just that's just kind of the reality of what goes on. And think about it yourself. The best example I could give is if you owned you owned four gas stations in Waukesha, for example. 
Waukesha County. And three of those gas stations were doing really, really well, and a fourth was not. And you took a look at it, and you said, look, I, I just, I can't, I'm losing money at this fourth gas station. What are you going to do? Well, it's easy. You're going to close that gas station unless you can figure out a way to, to turn it around. Maybe you try to turn it around for a year or two, but ultimately, if it's not making money and it's not producing, what do you do? You close it down. Now, maybe that's just because, maybe it's because of the, the crime problem and the theft problem. Maybe it's because there's not enough people shopping there, whatever. It's a business decision. So as we talked about last week, when this decision was announced, the new alderman from the area, his name is Mark Chambers, he called the closure terrible news, which it might very well be. But this is what he said. He said, it's infuriating that such a massive, resource-rich and wealthy Fortune 100 enterprise like Walmart cannot keep such an important location only. And he's open. And he said the move will not only negatively impact shoppers, pharmacy customers, and store workers, but I fear it will only add to the food desert issues that we are seeing in that area. Well, okay, okay, but but the argument is what that that Walmart is supposed to be a philanthropic enterprise, and that gee we're losing money or people are stealing all sorts of stuff, so we need to keep it open. I don't think so. So then there was a follow-up story on today's TMJ4. And in this case, the folks from the Hunger Task Force decided to weigh in on this. And this is the statement the Hunger Task Force issued. We are disappointed to hear about the closing of the Walmart on the northwest side of town. When a big box retailer leaves a community, it typically causes a loss not only in food, but in other goods and resources such as bus lines. And this is the statement then that caught my attention. They continue. Some people would call what's going on not a food desert, but food apartheid, the mistreatment of groups of people based on their race and ethnicity. So we should all question why this is going on. Hunger Task Force will continue to serve the community. I, I read that again. Some people would call what's going on not a food desert, but food apartheid, the mistreatment of groups of people based on their race and ethnicity. All right. Walmart making a business decision to close an underperforming store. That is now, I don't know, food apartheid mistreatment of groups of people based on their race and ethnicity our number is 855-616-1620 that's the old national bank talk and text line here it it's real real simple businesses in order to thrive businesses need to be successful if you have a location that for whatever reason whether it's theft whether it's not enough traffic whatever that is. But if you get a business that is not successful at a particular location, I think it is unreasonable to expect that business to stay open. And to try to say, well, closing a Walmart is the equivalent of mistreating groups of people based on their race or ethnicity, or that it's terrible that a Fortune 500 company like Walmart should close down an underperforming store, I think is absolutely ridiculous. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, I, if you're a very regular listener to this program, you know, I, I'm not... 
I'm not a huge fan of Walmart for a whole lot of reasons. I just don't think it's fair to criticize a business decision to close down an underperforming store and suggest that, oh, this might be a, a miss. This is contributing to a food apartheid or irresponsibility. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I mean, serious. You want to say to the Hunger Task Force, and I understand they have an agenda and they, they want the, the organization does very, very good work in feeding, you know, people who are hungry. But, you know, when you wade into these political issues, like Walmart makes the decision to close the place, their underperforming store on 103rd and Silver Spring. And there's a lot of reasons why it, it's going. I mean, a number of people have suggested they've had huge problems with theft. Okay, that I'm sure that is a factor, but it's the store isn't making money. So why would we expect that Walmart would stay open? Walmart has seven super centers located within 13 miles of this location. So people who still want to go to Walmart, well, it might be a little bit more inconvenient, but you're still going to be able to do that. But to suggest that, okay, this is you know, targeting people because of race and ethnicity, to suggest that as a Fortune 500 company, they somehow have an obligation to I don't know, keep an underperforming store open, to me is just I- insanity. Um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, maybe they should suggest and help implement solutions to reduce theft at the Walmart if they want it to stay open. Well, yeah, I mean, that that would be the idea. Look, if this is, I mean, see, this is the problem. These are the consequences that, that happen. If if you have a store that's just getting, has, like I say, a, a lot of theft that's going on that is dramatically hurting the bottom line, well, okay, if you want that store to stay open, maybe the response should be, hey, let's figure out a way to crack down on, on the shoplifting, for example, so they don't have that loss. Maybe you work with the store and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We'll have new rules with regard to shoplifting or we'll we'll increase the penalties or whatever and we'll aggressively denounce the shoplifting and things like that maybe maybe that would be the start jeff it's starting to fall on deaf ears the overuse of the victim card needs to stop private businesses need to make money or they close yeah i mean i think there's an element of that that's that's there jeff my uncle worked as a manager for walmart what undeniably happens when a walmart is shut down is theft it doesn't matter what race or color the thieves are theft is theft what i would like to see happen is these neighborhoods of these poor economic situations is some accountability for action if you want the walmart to stay open then quit stealing it's not a race issue at all um yeah i think there's an example of that um let's see eight five five six one six one six twenty um let's see jeff with the amount of theft and underperforming workforce this is what happens to this is what happens to a business yes um uh, for, uh, let's see. A lot of people are suggesting the the same thing. Jeff, people are nuts. Why can't anyone see reality anymore without you know blaming things? Um, Jeff, um, are the state or the hunger task force going to subsidize the Walmart location? I don't think 
so. Well, right. Jeff, the fact that they are a Fortune 500 company is for a reason. When they have to make hard decisions, they make them sadly. I believe that their shrinkage is the direct effect of less employees, more self-checkout, um, etc. One of our texters said that they shop at that store regularly, and when they've been there, what they find is that you know everything's like under lock and key now. Jeff, ask the New Berlin Police Department about the ridiculously high volume of call for service for retail theft. Walmart will not post a receipt checker at the door. Well, right, that's, you know, Walmart has kind of changed its policies with regard to that. Um, Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mike. Hi, Mike. I'm here. Are you there? Yeah, Yeah, I'm there. Go ahead. Um, Yeah, I'd like to call this ludicrous, but as you would say, that'd be an insult to the word ludicrous. I can't believe using that term to describe something. It's uh, like the ultimate insult to playing the race card. It's unbelievable that they would make race an issue. Like that one caller said, it's theft, pure and simple. And my guess is this store has been underperforming for quite some time, and they weren't closing it earlier because of the backlash they get, you know, because it's maybe in a black community. Yeah, I, Mike. Thanks for call. I, I think that well, I mean, it's a mixed community out there. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, one hundred third and Silver Spring. I, I, I don't. I, I wouldn't describe that as a as a. I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a majority minority area, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Jeff, uh, the alderman said on your station the other day that Walmart is a billion dollar company and they should just deal with the loss. Okay, well that's. That would be something that you would expect to hear from somebody who is a um, creature of government. Jeff, we recently lost a poor performing pick and save in our community, and no one made those arguments. Jeff, why should Walmart throw good money after bad? There's no targeting, just raw data that does not support the store. And yet, theft is likely to have impacted the decision, so maybe the answer is to... You know, clean up the problem. Jeff, I'm a Caucasian person who's lived in that neighborhood for a number of years until, who lived in the neighborhood for a number of years until 2020. They've had severe theft problems for years, and I'm surprised they didn't close a long time ago. It's a very mixed neighborhood. The criminals who caused it to close hurt all the neighbors, regardless of their um, race. Jeff, nobody screamed racism when the shop go closed in my small central Wisconsin community when I was a kid. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you've got these different instances that are there. And, and, and I think rather than concentrating on what the problem is, okay, why did the store, was it true that you had that crime was one of these reasons that closed the store, rather than um, concentrating on, okay, what what do we need to do to clean it up so the store can make money? You know, we, we blame Walmart and expect them to operate like a philanthropic enterprise. It's not. And yes, it is it is unfortunate news. There still are a number of Walmarts within that, that people could still travel to and things like that. But some of this over-the-top rhetoric, I mean, bottom line is stores exist to make money. If for whatever reasons the stores stop making money, those stores will close, period. Okay, now here's the flip side of that Walmart story. And I'm a couple, they announced this at the end of the last week. Palermo's, which is one of our, our partners here at WTMJ, and they're a regular sponsor of my Pop Culture Corner on Friday afternoon. Great business, great pizzas, etc. Um, they've announced that they are expanding their facilities. Um, 
They're going to expand production at their new Jefferson facility. They're going to be hiring more than 200 people. Some workers will also be located at the company's facility in Milwaukee. But this is, see, this is the flip side of of what's going on with the Walmart. Palermo's is growing. They're producing a product which is popular. It's been successful. And they're like, hey, this is what we're going to do. Okay, we're growing, so you know we're going to increase our commitment to you know provide jobs. And they're hiring management positions and productions associations and maintenance and warehouse positions. I mean, it's a great story from a Wisconsin company. But the truth is, they're doing the right thing, so they are expanding. Now, it might be at some point in time they, they need to contract, but it's not going to be because oh, you know, anything other than the, the business models. Businesses that are successful, they succeed. Businesses that are not, well, they end up failing and they end up having to close stores. And if you want to have a business thrive and survive, if they have underperforming stores, there's really no choice but to close them. And it's nothing more than that. I have been waiting all day to discuss this story with you. Nettie's House of Spaghetti in Tinton Falls, New Jersey, has figured out a way to get national publicity. Now, people say, well, there's no such thing as bad publicity. As I always say, the only people that say that are people that have never had bad publicity. But this this is one that cuts both ways. Here's the deal. They have announced, and this is a, it's a popular Italian restaurant. It's, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of it. It's a, it's a, it's a standalone sort of restaurant. It's not fine dining i don't i wouldn't describe it as that but it's it's you know kind of your basic italian restaurant so here's the deal late thursday they announced on social media that they were instituting a new policy that policy is that children under the age of 10 would not be admitted to the restaurant Here's what they said. We love kids. We truly do. But lately, it's been extremely challenging to accommodate children's at Nettie's. They, they posted. Um, we know that this is going to make some of you upset, especially those of you with very well-behaved kids. But we believe this is the right decision for our business moving forward. And they go on and they talk about how they've had problems with noise levels, lack of space for high chairs, liability issues from running children and crazy messes that some of the kids have left behind. So they're saying children under 10 will no longer be permitted to dine at Nettie's. Um, there, as you might expect, this is, well, this is getting all sorts of reactions. There's a number of people out there who are saying that this is terrible. You know, they've got well-behaved children, you know, so why should they be punished by, because, you know, got some people who are bringing kids who are kind of out of control. The flip side, looking at a story, woman who said she's worked in the restaurant industry for years applauded the policy, adding that, quote, kids are out of control and most parents are oblivious. She said that as a parent of a well-behaved nine-year-old, she's disappointed they'd not be welcome to dine at Nettie's, but she nevertheless understands. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So you have the restaurant saying, look, we've, we've, we know this is going to upset people, but we have, we've had problems. We've had problems with 
with kids leaving messes. We've had problems with kids, you know, running and creating disturbances and disturbing the other guests. So what we feel we need to do is just to simply say no kids under 10. Now, I admit that this is probably... I, I don't know if they're going to card kids at the door if you come in with, with a 12-year-old who looks like they're 9 or you come in with an 8-year-old who looks like they're 11. I understand that this creates some issues. But nevertheless, they are saying children under the age of 10 are not welcome. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, they're, they're a business, so they clearly have the right to do this. That's not the discussion. My question is, do you believe that this is the right thing to do? And do you think it will hurt them moving forward because people are going to get upset? Oh, I I can't bring my kids there. Or will it, in fact, help them? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. Things are okay with me these days. I got a good job. I got a good office. I got a new wife. Got a new life. And the back is fine. Welcome back, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. That, of course, is Billy Joel's scenes from an Italian restaurant. We're talking about an Italian restaurant called Nettie's, Nettie's House of Spaghetti in, in New Jersey. And they're getting national, actually international attention because they came out on Thursday and said, look, we're, we're, we're taking a brief, we're close for a brief winter break, but when we come back, um, we are, we're not going to be admitting children under the age of 10. Now, I, I understand there's problems. Are you going to start carting kids or, or whatever? But they're making it very clear that they don't want small children in the restaurant. And uh, I mean, I guess, is it possible that somebody might try to sneak their eight year old in and how they'll deal with it? That's a whole other question. But they're saying, look, this, we've, we've had problems. Well, we don't have space for high chairs. We have kids that run. We have kids that leave messes. And we've just thinking, we're thinking for the overall dining experience. We we don't want small children. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I, maybe maybe it's because I, I don't have small children myself, but I applaud them for making this decision. I, I, I do. I think this is a business decision. Obviously, they are going to upset some people with, with kids, but they've apparently made the decision that, first of all, they don't want those customers. It creates more of a hassle to other customers, and I... I respect that because I think, you know, there's nothing worse than going to a a restaurant and you want to go out, you want to have a nice relaxing dinner or whatever, and you have parents who have like the out-of-control kids that are running through the restaurant and they're just not watching them at all. That's, That's a problem. And apparently it is bad enough at this particular restaurant that they've made the decision that they'd rather alienate those parents of the small kids then have to turn off the the other diners who are you know bothered by all this eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Jeff and Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. As someone who is a mo- former movie theater usher who used to have to clean up after The Little Mermaid, I definitely do not fault these people. Um, and not just for cleanliness reasons. I also think there are safety matters involved because I've seen the way real small children run around out, out in stores and restaurants and stuff. And um, I think that their customers, like base, might change, like like demographic-wise. But I don't yeah. think that it'll hurt them as long as they make maybe some small adjustments, like change their hours around and possibly make yeah. carryouts available for people who who do have small children but wouldn't otherwise be able to come in. 
Well, thanks for calling, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, look, I'm, I'm sure there, I'm, I am sure there might be some people. So I'm never going back there again because my my kids aren't welcome. But to your point, my guess is they they'll make that up with other people who say, yeah, this is kind of nice because you know we you know when when we're going to go out and, and have a spaghetti dinner and stuff, we we don't want to have the the screaming three year old at the table next to us. And all I can imagine is to to do something like this. They, they must they must have had a lot of problems with this. And I will tell you that I've been in restaurants from time to time, and you do. You, you kind of, on the one hand, you feel bad for the parents, maybe because the kids are out of control, but at the same time, you feel bad for yourself because you're there and you, you don't want to have the out-of-control kids. Jeff, it'll help them. As an empty nester, I don't want to go to a restaurant with screaming children or children running around. There are plenty of restaurants out there for children, not plenty of mid-range restaurants for adults. I bet it will also help the servers with tips. Parents with small children aren't always the best tippers when children are spilling things and asking for multiple things one at a time. I, I don't know. That could go either way. I know... Um, I know I had a couple acquaintances over the years, and when they had small children, they they were big tippers because they were just kind of embarrassed at that. I'm just that's the description. They say that you know when when their kids would leave a table, it was like a hurricane hit it, and they'd they'd feel bad and they'd leave an extra uh, tip for that. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, um, I have two small children, and I'm not surprised by the decision of this restaurant. However, I do clean up after my children at the restaurant, and I make sure they're well behaved. Also, I'm not incredibly worried about other diners i'm paying the restaurant for the service and i reflect any difficulty on my children or myself or myself in the tip um well i think for everybody who does i you know it's interesting that that i just there's a place i patronize a lot i just i mean i i got a the the owner was was sending out something saying they they just sent out a, a memo to like their regular customer base and it was like they're, they're asking ki- they're they're not banning kids but they said they've had a number of complaints about the kids kind of running around and the message was hey can you you know we we don't want the kids running through the restaurant and things like that it creates a problem Jeff I've been in the restaurant business for forty years and that's what I see. I love kids when they come in. Um, when there are kids at the table, parents usually don't have a few cocktails. That's where the money is. That's my guess about why they don't want them in. I think it's about the uh, the money. Eh, I, I I don't know. I, I guess I just tend to believe them, take them at face value that you've got you've got out of control kids who are creating a, a nuisance and to other diners. Um, Jeff, it's going to be very uncomfortable for the hosts who have to turn away people who come in with kids. Um, it might honestly create more headaches for a staff who have to be the bearer of bad news as family who take the time to get the kids ready to go out to dinner and went to the restaurant. Well, that's it. Jeff, this puts restaurant owners in a no-win situation. We're damned if we let them in and they ruin other customers' experience and we're damned by the parents if we don't let them in. Jeff, my husband and I own a small upscale restaurant on the east side. You've been to it many times. We applaud the restaurant for having the courage to take this position and take back control. We recently had a situation on a busy Friday night where a family of four allowed their child to sit cross-legged in the middle of the table and then actually stand on our white tablecloth table. We approached them to please remove the child from the table. All we received was a negative Google review on how the situation was handled. It's no win. We've had plenty of great kids over the years as well. The bottom line is there are inappropriate places for young children. Jeff, I love it. 
Name it again so I can go there. Well, it's a place called Nettie's House of Spaghetti in Trenton, New Jersey. Not Trenton, but uh, Tinton. I'm sorry, Tinton Falls, New Jersey. I love it. Name it again so I can go there. Younger people with kids think we should all love and enjoy their kids. And the answer is no. I guess my take on this again, though, it's, it's a business decision. I'm not going to fault the business for making this decision. It would make me more likely to want to go there. At the same time, I also know that there are some restaurants that are that are going to be quote unquote family friendly. And when you go to Red Robin, for example, for some reason that pops in my mind, you know there's going to be kids. And so it's going to be a different dining experience. So you go to Red Robin and you're going to sit there and, you know, I, I don't think you can complain about the fact that, hey, there's families there. That is a that is geared as a family restaurant. This place is obviously trying to set itself up as being something different than that. Guy in Brookfield. Guy, you're on WTMJ. Yes, thank you. Hi, Guy. Um, sure. I had four. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. You're on. Can you hear me? Yes, right. I can. I had four kids. I, I had four kids. I, uh, first one, we always took them out. Uh, first one, uh, restaurants. Second one, third one, fourth one. Um, all behaved. Uh, my wife for uh, 24 hours. I take them to breakfast when she was at work. Uh, never had a problem. Don't ban the kids. Ban the family. Ban the family. This is this is parents. This is parents not taking control of their kids. And I'll tell you, uh, God bless this guy, and uh, he can do what he wants with his business, and I agree with you. But it's yeah. a spaghetti joint, uh, I think. If it's a spaghetti joint, it's a family joint. Well, I understand, but it's, I mean, you say it's a spaghetti joint, but still, they're, he's obviously, they're obviously trying for a certain type of, of environment. And he, he doesn't want it to be a Red Robin. I don't know why I'm picking out Red Robin. But, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily want it to be uh, a Denny's. It, apparently, they're, they're trying for a, a slightly more sedate customer experience. Now, I agree with what you're saying about how, you know, at the end of the day, if, if the parents don't have control of their kids, it's a parental thing. But when the parents don't have control of their kids and they bring them to the restaurant, it becomes a problem for the restaurant and it becomes a problem with the, the other diners. So I guess I, I look at this and I think, look, here here's just the, the bottom line. They're making it very clear that this is their policy. And if you don't like it, Fine, find another place to, to go with your kids. And if you think this is anti-child and you don't want to go there because you think that the owners are taking an unreasonable position, fine, find another place to go. My guess is, though, this does not hurt them in the long run or the short run because I think a lot of people are going to understand this, and I think a lot more people are going to probably say, hey, I, I know I can go to this experience, and I don't have to worry about you know some four-year-old that's out of control screaming at the top of their lungs. That's a business decision they're going to make. My guess is it's going to work out for them. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. BRI's on the road. See something out there that I should know about? Slow reporting and accidents on 40. Call me, Debbie Lazaga, at the hallmazda.com traffic tip line at 414 238 9329. Hey, Debbie, this is Al Collins. I found E94 backed up all the way to Boys Road. The drive affects you. Why not be part of it? Hi, Debbie, it's Mark. There's an incident on the left. 
shoulder and at the parking lot. Give me a call. 414-238-9329. AccuNet Mortgage is an equal housing letter. NMLS ID 255368. This is Chief Explanation Officer Brian Wickard here to explain why the mortgage rate you see in the news or even on a lender's website may not be the actual rate you get. That's because news outlets often report mortgage rates that are a week old, which is just plain dumb. The other big reason is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are making the recipe for what rate a particular borrower gets way more complicated. But if you're a three or more person household with annual income of less than $127,400 and you're buying your first or next home in the four-county Milwaukee metro area, low overhead Acunet has some super special and super simple 30-year fixed rate money available. The 30-year fixed rate with no points is just 5.63%. The APR can be as low as 5.83 with top-notch credit. So please don't just lazily and crazily go with your bank. Go with a local mortgage lender that has all the tools in its toolkit to help you go from home shopper to home owner. Get started today at accunet.com. Our featured sponsor this week on our Home Improvement Showcase is Ridgetop Exteriors. Matt had just moved into his first apartment and needed furniture to fill it, but he didn't have a big credit line. So I told him about St. Vincent de Paul. There's always a nice selection of gently used furniture there, and sometimes you can find some really cool retro pieces. And the best part is, it's always super affordable. St. Vincent de Paul thrift stores for first-time furniture buyers or anyone looking for great deals on Highway 100 in Layton and Greenfield and 23rd in Lincoln in Milwaukee. You're gonna love it, St. Vincent de Paul. WTMJ's John Mercure here for Senior Real Estate Specialist Bruce and Jean Nemovitz. Ready to sell and transition to a senior community, apartment, or condo? Join Bruce and Jean at Burner Botanical Gardens, a free seminar on March 7th. Hear from Bruce and Jean's team of experts, covering everything from downsizing a lifetime of stuff to preparing your home and the selling process. Governor Marty Schreiber will discuss his book, My Two Elaines, about navigating Alzheimer's with those you love. Seating is limited. Register today. It's free at brucesteam.com. WTMJ, W277-CV, and WKTI-HD2 Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ, a good karma brand station. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Touch the nerve with that last topic. Jeff, I work part-time at two large entertainment venues downtown. Parents, we are not there to watch your kids. And yes, it's up to you to yell at little Johnny when he's acting up, not us. Um, Jeff, we went to the domes on Saturday, and they have posted in many places that the care and safety of children is the responsibility of parents. We were there with our two grandchildren. I commented to my daughter that it's sad they have to post it. It's too bad that it's gotten so bad that a restaurant has to ban kids. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an element at that. Jeff, another troublesome thing I've seen in recent years is young families out with their young children at very late hours in restaurants that are open 24-7 or until 2 or 3 a.m. Well, it's all these different factors that are there, but uh, I, I would not be surprised to see more of this. Uh, Connie was alluding to this in the bottom of the hour news. It's, the, okay, the primary election for state Supreme Court is a week from tomorrow. It, it's next Tuesday. Early voting has started and things like that. And th- these numbers are just 
just absolutely staggering. As we've talked about before, right now there's a four to three split, conservative versus liberal. The liberals very much want to take back this seat because they believe that that can be the, the way that they can undo a number of laws that have been passed to, to use the, the courts. So they're, they're putting a ton of money in. The, uh, the story in the Journal Sentinel is that in a primary alone, it's expected that over $6 million is, is going to be spent. The leading liberal candidate is this Janet Protasewicz, who's a very liberal Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge. She is raising a ton of money from out-of-state sources. This race has become national, and so you have all this out-of-state money that is trying to elect the state Supreme Court judge. Interestingly, there's a couple of these liberal um, dark money groups. One is called A Better Wisconsin Together, um, and it's interesting to me because um, – then another one is called Protect Our Families. They're spending just almost $1.5 million running attack ads against Judge Doro. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that Judge Doro is one of the two uh, conservatives who are running. Clearly, the left has made the decision that she is the stronger candidate. And this is a tactic that played out in a lot of primary elections during the the partisan primaries of last summer. The left identifies which of the two conservative candidates or Republican candidates would be the weaker candidate. And then they viciously attack the other one, trying to get the weaker candidate to pull through. So clearly the left has made a decision in Wisconsin that, hey, Dan Kelly is a much weaker candidate than Jennifer Doro, so they're trying to trash Jennifer Doro, hoping that she doesn't make it out of the primary. I don't think that strategy is going to work, but that's what's happening now. At least the left thinks that she would be the stronger candidate, so they don't want conservatives voting for her. Like I say, I don't think it's going to work. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Uh, this this hour is going to be a, a little bit different than most of our 2 o'clock hours. As we've been talking about all day, the um, funeral for the, the the Milwaukee police officer who was uh, lost his life in the line of duty, Peter Jerving, um, that, that funeral is going on right now. Um, after the funeral itself concludes, there is going to be a procession where his is transferred from um, the, the church where the funeral is going on to his ultimate resting place. And there will be a procession, as we do, um, unfortunately, every time something like this happens. Um, we're going to be bringing you live coverage of the procession just because of logistics. John McCure is going to be helping me out with that. And so, John, once that procession starts, John is going to take over, and he'll he'll take you through that, and that will take us well into um, Wisconsin's afternoon news. So we've we got to be a little bit flexible. We, we anticipate that that's going to start right around 2.30 or so, but again, it it happens when it happens. And one of the things that, again, it's just, it is, you hate to see everybody come together over in such a tragic sort of situation, but when you have a member of law enforcement who loses their life in such a tragic and senseless way, it's it's always, it's always 
good to see how the law enforcement community you know comes together and how much support there is for the, the family members of the fallen police officer and as, as we've talked about before and we'll continue to talk about moving forward there's a number of different avenues that are available to people if they want to you know show their support and, and help the family in this very very difficult time so that that's that's where we're going sometime this hour we will uh, describe the procession to you and John McKeer is going to be helping out doing that um, did I was I was listening to the, to the the sports portion of Connie's newscast so I'm watching the Super Bowl yesterday and you know great great game no question about it it, it was sort of interesting that the, the game was essentially decided by a defensive holding call in the last two minutes that guaranteed that Kansas City would be able to run out the clock and, and kick the game-winning field goal. And I was watching that, and I was thinking, you know, I, it's it's kind of a it was kind of a ticky-tack call, and you, you hate to see such a great game decided on sort of a ticky-tack call. But I did think it was interesting that the, the Philadelphia player that had it, it that the, the hold called against him, you know, he's, he's not complaining. He was out there saying, well, it's, you know, it, it was a hold. So there's a lot of stuff that you could be outraged about. But I thought that was the appropriate way to, to do it. Say, so, well, it, it was a hold. I was hoping they wouldn't call it. But you know, I think that was a very, very responsible way to do it. Okay, so what are we going to talk about? Well, not so much the game itself. It was just a, a great game, and anybody who watched it, I think, would, would say that. But, you know, what's the other thing, and what's the other reason why people watch football games, the Super Bowl in particular? They, they watch it to see the, the commercials. And I know there's been a lot of talk about this on this and other stations, but I, I wanted to weigh in for a segment. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. I've got a couple different postings. One is I have a link from USA Today that lists and has all the different Super Bowl commercials that aired. I, I think it's it's all of them. So, you know, that is that is up there. I also have another link um, that, that shows some of the most popular commercials as judged by, and it's all very, very subjective. There, there's, there's no question about it. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, here is my question. What Super Bowl ad do you think was the best? What worked for you? And you can define that however you want. Which which one did you enjoy the most? What do you think was the best? And if you've got one that just did absolutely nothing for you, I'll, I'll be interested to talk about that as well. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. When I view these ads... One of the things that I, I always look at, I say this constantly, is you, sometimes these ads are, are too clever for their own good. By that, I mean they're, they're really cute. Oh, you go, that was kind of cute. Then you say, well, what's the ad for? And you go, I don't remember what that was an ad for. If I was going to spend 6 or $7 million promoting my product, I guarantee you that you would know what that ad would be. Sometimes also with the celebrity ads, and I noticed this a lot yesterday, I thought a lot of the celebrity ads, they, they had celebrities, but they didn't really make any sense. I mean, it was like, okay, th- this particular celebrity, there, there's no connection to the product a- at all. It's just, okay, we've got a celebrity for the sake of having celebrity. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What what ad do you think really worked? You know, I have I have one that I thought there were some good ones. I thought there were some bad ones. I have one that I thought was really, really good. I'll share that with you and we'll discuss in just a minute. 855-616-1620. Back with more in just a few seconds. 
855-616-1620. We're talking about the Super Bowl, the ads that you the ads that worked for you or the ads that didn't work for you. Um Jeff, best it, it, it's so I love doing these segments because it's like so many things in life. It's it's very very judgmental. And ads that you might have liked just to me just, just didn't work at all. Uh, Jeff, I think the best ad was the Michelob Ultra Caddyshack ad. Um, Jeff, there was a good one. Um, Jeff, I thought the majority of the commercials were very subpar to disappointing. The one commercial I thought was very clever was for Tubi. That's the one where the app bar on your TV came up and was switching to the Tubi app. It fooled me to the point where I yelled at my friend saying, why the heck are you changing the channel right now? I thought it was very clever. It's interesting that the, the texter should mention that because that Tubi ad, um, if you look at a lot of the like worst ads, a lot of people think that that was just an awful ad. Um, Jeff, I'm biased because it was my favorite show of all time, but I loved the Breaking Bad commercial. I thought that was so well done. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad, and of course you had Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston reprising their roles, and the um, I forget the name of the actor that plays Tuto, who, uh, Tuco, who was one of the bad guys from the first couple seasons. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought, I mean, the problem is you have to you have to know Breaking Bad for this to work. But if you do that, um, Jeff, for me, the best one was the Ram truck and the premature electrification ad. You know, it's interesting. That's another one of those ads that kind of pushed the envelope a little. And it's one where you either loved it or you absolutely hated hated it. Jeff, for me, the best one was Downey uh, McBride. Uh, the worst, Maya Rudolph M&M's was annoyingly stupid. I, I agree. I You know, in, this, uh, in the category of I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so, you know, when they first announced, when M&M's first announced that, oh, we're going to retire the, the cartoon smoke, Spokes Candies, I, I smelled a publicity stunt, and that's precisely what that was. Um, Jeff, I thought the ad about Jesus was great. Glad to see the Christians get a good message. I thought the one with Ozzy was cool, but I don't remember who it was for. Right, that's the um that was the one um it it's worked uh workdays commercial and it had not only Ozzy Osbourne but Billy Idol and Joan Jett and uh Gary Clark Jr. and Paul Stanley of Kiss. That was the one where they were demanding that stop using the term um rock star. Um, that's it. Jeff, I enjoyed the pixel ad. Loved how they showed you could race people, pets, and uh, race people and pets for, from your uh, feed. Uh, that was one that had Giannis in it, as I recall. Jeff, I can't even tell you because I found almost every commercial to be completely underwhelming with very little creativity. Well, I think that's a little bit too harsh there. Um, Jeff, I was amused by several ads that didn't get much publicity, including the electric Dodge Ram one that parried, parodied ED ads, uh, the jingle auditions for Uber one when people perform very bad covers, um, and the Molson Coors ad that first pretended to be for Miller Lite, then for Coors, and then ended saying it was really for Blue Moon. See, now that's again an interesting take because I thought I thought that ad was one of 
I, the most ineffective ads that I, I saw. I mean, I, I watched that. And if you if you had seen it, this is one where it, you've got the, the Miller Lite um, and Coors Light, and they're they're fighting it out in in that's with like twenty eight seconds. Is it a Miller Lite ad? Is it an ad for Coors Light? And then it turns out at the very end they just say, well, it's an ad for Blue Moon. So I mean, I don't know. That one just didn't work for me, Jeff. I like the commercial that used John Travolta and the Grease reference. Right? That's I had a link to that up on Friday. That's one where I mean, he's he's reprising his his Grease character and singing those tunes. Jeff, they spent fourteen million on two Jesus commercials. Talk about wasteful. Well, they're getting a lot of controversy there. There's no question about it. Jeff, the Maya Rudolph ad was supposed to be annoying and stupid. After the game, the M&M characters came on and announced that they were back. Yeah, I, I saw that. Um, I, I understand, but I don't know. If I'm going to spend $7 million, it's not going to be putting out an ad that I that um, I that it's going to be intentionally annoying and stupid. Jeff, I enjoyed the female flag football player who was running from everyone taking her flag. Um, yes, that one got a lot of support. Let me go through the ones that the, the one that I liked. I've got a link up if you follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. I think I think the best one of the night was the the Dunkin' Donuts ad, the one with Ben Affleck who was at the at the drive through window, um, and you know you, you mean. And this ties into what I was talking about with celebrities, because I think pretty much everybody knows that that Ben Affleck is a Boston guy, and that you know he he that's where Dunkin' Donuts is from, and he likes Dunkin' Donuts. So there was this kind of logical connection to it. I thought that was I thought that was really really good, and that was an ad that I think you know worked for me. Um, quite a bit. So I, I thought the, the Ben Affleck ad clearly was, you know, one of the ones that really kind of knocked it out of the park. And if you look at a lot of the, you know, national rankings, that was the one. The other ones that got a lot of love were the dog ads. Actually, on USA Today and their ad meter, the 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 one that scored the highest was the one they call the farmer's dog. You know, that was the one where you have the, you know, chocolate lab and the girl, um, you know, they, they travel through this um, 60-second journey through life that seems to, you know, set it up for a jarring conclusion. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's they're, they're all together um, lovingly. Um, and the whole idea is that the dog is around all through it because the family had the foresight to feed him, farmer's dog i thought that that one worked really really well um you know no question about that i think the other ad with the dog that showed that the dog was destroying all the stuff and then you know you think okay they're going to get rid of the dog and then the um whole idea is that they, they end up getting a new dog and so they're not getting rid of the dog the dog's ads they, they just they just work i mean the bottom line is people love animals and i think they love that the um the the flag football ad was the NFL's run with it ad. So I think that that one did very well as well. So I, uh, you know, a lot of money, you can argue $7 million for a 30 second ad. Is that money well spent? But if you get people talking about your product, um, it's successful. Interestingly, no crypto ads. Uh, last year it was the crypto bowl this year, no crypto ads, no surprise about that. And no Larry David and no Matt Damon and no, um, Tom Brady, and no Madonna hawking, you know, cryptocurrency. And I think we're all better off for that. 
You know, it's interesting talking about how like different people have have different impressions of the ads. I'm looking at this piece. I think it's in the Washington Post, and they they have one of their favorite ads was one that I absolutely thought was awful, and it was the the Binky Binky Dad ad. It was for the 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 Kia, and it was like the guy and his wife and their kid. They they go to it was a sixty second ad. It seemed to me it went on forever, and he had forgotten the Binky, which is the pacifier for the kid, and so he he has to drive home and to try to recover the pacifier. And then the the tagline is he comes back and it's the wrong color one or whatever, and so then he's back out of the road. For I just. I thought that was just flat out dumb. But yet at the story I'm looking at, the Washington Post, you know, some of the people there, they absolutely loved it. One of the other ones that I thought was really, really good was uh, the ad for Disney. And, you know, I understand Disney's been kind of somewhat, you know, controversial and all. But, you know, they're they're celebrating their 100th anniversary. And it was the, the different phrases they used where they had they had Walt Disney and you know Walt Disney's voice and they were showing a lot of stuff going on I thought it was a I thought it was just a really really you know good ad and so that one kind of worked for me even though I don't have any plans to go back to Disney World anytime soon but it was kind of interesting um as to how that worked out I I just but before we, we turn it over to news what what is it that some of these people don't understand remember about a week ago we we talked about the story where you had the the high school kids who were in Washington D.C. for the March for Life, the, the giant you know anti-abortion protest that was that they have, and they do that every year. And a bunch of the kids went to the Smithsonian, the Air and Space Museum, and they were all wearing blue beanies that said pro-life, and it was part of their their field trip. But one of the other reasons they had them on is so that the that the teachers and chaperones could see all the kids. And you had a couple security guards that started yelling at them and and threw them out because they were wearing these pro-life beanies, saying, oh, you have to take them off. Just absolutely ridiculous. Well, apparently it it happened again at the same time that these kids were being thrown out. Apparently you had a couple people who were there who went into the uh, National Archives and um, they had on buttons and hats that said life is a human right or pro-love is the new pro-life. And they entered the rotunda of the Capitol where the Constitution and Bill of Rights are on display. Apparently a guard goes up to them and says, take off your pro-life pin. And one of the people is talking about this is as I'm standing next to the Constitution that literally says freedom of speech on it. Um, a, a guard is telling me to take off my pin. Apparently, it's a 17 year old girl who complies because she doesn't want to get thrown out. National Archives has now acknowledged that, yeah, this this in, in fact happened as well. What is it with some of these guards who just flat don't get it? Don't answer. That's a rhetorical question. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, a couple program notes. As, as we said, we've been mentioning, we will we will carry and describe the the procession that is going to occur after the funeral for Officer uh, Jervig concludes. The, the funeral. We anticipate originally they thought it was going to that procession would start around two thirty. Um, the, the funeral services started a little bit late, and it, it looks like that the procession probably is going to start. My guess is for at least another half hour or so. But whenever we do, keep it tuned here. We will uh, bring you coverage. And unfortunately, I say unfortunately, John McCure has had the assignment of doing that on, on more occasions than we'd like. But John always does an outstanding job with that. All right, I want to. 
I want to talk about the, the welfare state. Now, hear, hear me out on this. The, when, when Tommy Thompson became governor of Wisconsin, one of the things that thrust him to the, the national forefront was this commitment he had to end welfare as we know it. And, and the idea, the idea, and actually Bill Clinton even kind of bought into this to the extent, the idea was that we are not doing people a favor if we just give them money. What we need to do, and it's the old sort of biblical thing about if you give a man a fish, well, he's going to be hungry pretty quickly. If you teach him how to fish, he'll be able to, you know, provide for himself. So the 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 argument was always that what we need to do is you you had people who were on welfare for, for generations, and the government had supported them. And what we needed to do was to figure out a way to get people off of welfare, teach them skills so they can support themselves instead of this you know, multi-generational sort of, of welfare that, that goes on. And, and we've been moving towards that for a number of years. Well, now there is, there's blowback about this. And the idea is, well, you shouldn't expect people to you know, have to work or you shouldn't expect people to have to try to go to school or anything like that. And that as a basic human right, essentially, what we should do is we should just provide them with money without expecting any more of it. Well, so what's happening is there are a number of communities that are now deciding, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go with what we call guaranteed income. And the idea is we just want to help people out. So Chicago is the latest um, community to do this. Chicago and some of the other surrounding uh, suburbs in Cook County are now conducting the largest experiment of its kind in the nation. Now this this doesn't involve providing, you know, food like food stamps and things like that. It doesn't provide, you know, talk about like, you know, housing subsidies. It's not just child care. It's all that. But it's also cash. So as part of this program, people are going to be getting $500 checks. And it started in December. $500 checks a month from the the government. That that's the idea. Now, you say, well, $500 checks, you know, that that sounds good. Well, what they would do is in addition, um so who qualifies for this? Well, the income cutoff to get this $500 is 250% of the federal poverty level. So that means if you are an individual you will get a $500 check if you're in this pilot program if you make up to about $36,450 a year. A family of four can earn up to $75,000 a year and still qualify for this $500 program. And what they think in Chicago is that this is going to be the wave of the future. Let's give people the dough and we'll no strings attached. So you can do whatever you want with it. You can, you know, use it to buy diapers. You can use it to buy food. You can use it to buy cigarettes. You can use it to pay, play the lottery. You can use it to buy beer. But the idea is we're just going to guarantee people income. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right. What do you think? Just giving people who family of four, 
75 grand or less, we're just going to give you $500. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. If you're just tuning in, here, here's the deal. Chicago has just launched the largest pilot program in the country to give out guaranteed income. If you qualify, you can get a $500 check a month. And how do you qualify? Well, okay, if you're a family of four and you make less than $75,000 a year. No, I didn't say 7500 no, I, I said $75,000 a year. You get $500 in free money uh, a month, $6,000 a year. Um, Thirty, If you're a single person, like 36, 36 five is, is what the number is. No, no questions asked. And here's the other thing that, that people need to understand. This does not count against any other government benefits. So you can be getting your food share program. You can be getting your housing assistance. You can be getting all the other things, Social Security, disability, all the different other things that are out there. And they're going to give you an extra $6,000 on top of that. 855-616-1620. Jeff, giving $500 checks a month without ever having to hold a job? Wow, what an incentive to just live off the hard work of everyone else. To which I say, amen. I think that that one texture just kind of summarizes this. I mean, th- this idea, if, if our goal has been we want to try to create a culture where people want to better themselves. Well, what you want to do is, is you want to have, I mean, look, I appreciate, we, we've always had a responsibility to have a, a safety net for those who are least fortunate in society. But that doesn't mean you have a hammock that allows people to just figure out ways to not work. You, you, if you want to understand this, how, how dumb this is, look at what happened when we continued unemployment over and over. We continued making unemployment payments. Typically, unemployment is something that's designed for people who are temporarily out of work. The expectation is you will be able, if you lose your job, you will go out, you will find another job. And that's why typically unemployment benefits are capped after six months. Well, remember during the the pandemic where jobs just disappeared and you had arguably a crisis situation, we, we had this continued. So then you had unemployment benefits that were good for a year and then a year and a half. And then I think in some cases up to two years. And what happened? Well, people didn't go back to work. People just said, well, and I mean, I, under, I understand it is human nature. Now, look, if, if you've got a if you've got a job where you're, you're making a ton of money, that's fine. But for many, many people, the difference between going back to work, paying taxes, and then the m- amount of money you had left over after that versus not working and just staying on the dole, collecting the unemployment benefits, it, it was close. And so people didn't go back to work. I, I understand it's human nature. Why go to a job that you don't like to do if you can make as much money or almost as much money just simply sitting on your butt? Well, what happened once the unemployment benefits disappeared? People, surprise follows surprise, went back to work. This is that whole premise, but it's this premise on steroids. You know, to, Just imagine a situation where, all right, you're already you're getting your various forms of government benefits that are there, and you can get an extra six thousand dollars. 
what is the incentive to go to work at all? And the answer is there, there's none. Jeff, Karl Marx would be proud of Lori Lightfoot. She's the mayor of Chicago. Um, yes, Jeff, it's just one step closer to a socialistic society. It's exactly what the left works. Jeff, who is paying for this? Well, the taxpayers are. This is this pilot program. Jeff, this is called socialism. It gives most people no motivation to succeed. Well, at least it gives some people no motivation to succeed and no motivation to benefit themselves. Jeff, this just keeps, they just keep reinventing this. Um, you know, how will they vet these people? Um, how will they stop someone who purchasing drugs, guns, etc.? No, there, there's no strings attached. I mean, that's the clear thing with this. You get the dough, you can do whatever you want with this. Jeff, whatever happened to people trying to better themselves, we didn't have a lot growing up. And if we needed something, we didn't have the money. We waited until we got the money. Um, no question about it. Jeff, I agree. We need to lift people up, not carry them. Um, yeah. A co-worker who came from overseas once said, I don't understand this country. Um, I'm from Korea. In Korea, we have a f- simple system. You work, you eat. You don't work, you don't eat. By doing what we were doing is preventing people from succeeding. It sometimes almost seems as if that is the plan. Jeff, it's way too easy to qualify. Well, that's see, that's the other thing that, that jumped out to me. And, and it's been a point that I've been trying to make over the course of, of the last two years as we're dealing with COVID. It's one thing if you decide, look, we want to offer some assistance to the people that are really at the, the bottom economic rung. So it, it was just it was exactly like when we had all those COVID payments. I'm sure I'm sure you, like I do, know all sorts of people who really, they weren't adversely affected by COVID. They had plenty of money in the bank. They didn't lose their jobs. But the government's going to send them these stimulus checks, so they're going to take it. I understand that. Don't fault anybody for that. This is the same sort of thing. If we wanted to really help those less fortunate, well, what we do is we sure as heck wouldn't be sending money to people who make $75,000 or if you think that there's 70 grand, take take that, 70 grand a year, you would think that the government shouldn't be having to provide you with an extra $500. But this this is the pilot program that is out there and you know we'll we'll see. Jeff, maybe this will act in reverse like Wisconsin um did with Illinois welfare benefits people will go back to Illinois sorry if that sounds tacky and callous yeah they're referring I mean Wisconsin for a long period of time was a magnet state for welfare and then once we changed that all up um, you, you saw the reverse. Jeff, isn't it funny that this is happening in one of the brokest states? I'm not sure that's a word. Most broke, most broke states in the union. This is taking from you and me and redistributing wealth, and the recipients will be no better off a year from now than they are now, guaranteed. Um, Jeff, I might have to quit my job and move to Chicago. Sounds like fun. Kidding. Just kidding. Jeff, you're right. The income threshold is way too um that is way too high. Jeff, the mayor is up for election. I wonder what her motivation might be. Eh, I think that's Jeff. And to think I busted my butt all my life to earn a living. At least I can say I earned everything I 
have. Jeff, how about putting a condition that you have to do so much community service work in order to get the money? Well, no, that that defeats the whole purpose. We're all about guaranteed income, giving people the money so they can better themselves and not being judgmental about how they choose to spend it. Um, Yeah. um, Jeff, this is just buying votes. Well, I I think there is certainly an element of buying votes about that. Jeff, how about sending another $500 a month for all the people who have retired from working? Well, all you people scraping by on Social Security, I'm sorry, you are you're not part of the equation. In any event, this is a pilot program. It's being watched all over the country because there's a lot of communities that have tried something like this, but not not to the level that they are not to the level that they have, have are doing it here. And the idea is going to be, well, if people like it, well, some people are going to like it. I mean, how can you not like getting an extra check for $500 every month? People are going to like it, but the question is going to be, you know, is this something that's going to appeal to the majority of people, which means all those people who have to pay for this but aren't going to get it?